In this episode, Tatiana Rezende, CFO at Newham Shop, talks about testing for curiosity in the hiring process, describes the importance of always taking the call from potential investors, and explains why empathy and authenticity are fundamental for any successful CFO. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Tatiana, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Ross. So Tatiana, I'd love to start by exploring how you arrived as a CFO and, and your journey to becoming one, because from your background, you you started off as an engineer and, and you'd mentioned to us previously as well that you still thought of yourself in some respects as an engineer. So how did you chart that path from original interest in engineering through into finance and then eventually into a leadership position within finance where you are today? Raz, I actually still think about myself as an engineer. I always thought about myself as an engineer. That's why I went into engineering school. I, growing up, I always like to play with uh, construction blocks and, and, and those things. I, I truly always thought about myself and still think about myself as, a, as an engineer. However, when I, I went into engineering school and throughout my time there, I, I started learning many things and I, and I realized that I wanted to be a little bit more connected to what was truly happening in the world. So I, I really wanted to understand the dynamics, the more the broader world dynamics and that from my perspective at the time, really revolved a lot of, around the businesses. And I wanted to learn more about the businesses and, and be closer to that. And I soon gained a taste, developed a taste for, for financial markets, just because financial markets reflect a lot of how the world is, of what's happening in the world. And I really wanted to understand that. And always with the, the engineer mindset of trying to learn and trying to understand what was going on to make the best decisions. And that's how I ended up in working in one of the one of the big banks at the time was the I think it was the biggest international bank in Brazil. I started my career in in their real estate private equity arm. The one thing that I really liked about that role it was uh, it was a construction role. So I, we were building the the team from almost from scratch. It was the fourth person in the team. Today they have spun out of the of the bank structure and are like a thirty plus person a team. And it really, uh, today I know that I really like this process of building businesses and building things. So that kind of reconciles with my my engineering background as well. And there I started looking at, I started working with the two real estate funds. One was a debt fund. The other one was an equity fund. The equity fund was a, was a shopping mall fund. At one point I was, I was basically like a mini CFO for, for the fund. It was a publicly traded entity. So I had to deal with investor relations, with audit, with taxes, but at the same time it was a, a highly acquisitive entity as well. So I did dozens of M&A processes and, and follow on processes in the fund. It was, a, it was really intense. That was on the first big, I mean, the last big real estate wave that we had in Brazil. So it was also a very good timing to be in the industry. But at one point, I realized that I did not want to invest my entire career in shopping malls. I knew that that was going to be an industry that was going to get disrupted. And even though it might still exist, it, it will probably not exist the way that we, we thought about it then. And I really wanted to be, and again, based on my, my engineering background, I really wanted to be more connected with the future. 
and how things are uh, how things are going and not be attached to industries that were going to get disrupted. So when the market started showing signs of that there was a crisis probably to arrive in Brazil and you could see that with the shopping malls numbers, it's kind of a very easy thing to see. My wife and I decided to go live in the US and get some more education. So I went to get my MBA at Chicago then. And there I, I tried some things out. So I worked in two different private equity funds, one more international, the other one more focused in the US, in New York and in Chicago. And then eventually, uh, when I was close to graduation, I started working as the CFO of a food company that was going through a, a turnaround process. It was actually like turnaround slash startup because it was a more traditional business model that we wanted to build an e-commerce around. We want to develop an e-commerce arm for the for the business. I did a lot of that. I was not only a CFO, but also like head of operations and did the business development side of the, the e-commerce business. And I spent three years there building that business basically on top of uh, one of the, the big D2C companies platform. And I learned a lot about the, the business model, the product itself. And I could see the development of that, the, the thesis throughout those the three years between 2017 and 2020. And in parallel, I had my first kid and we wanted to move back to Brazil to be closer to family. And I started conversations with Nuvin Shop who were looking for, for a CFO then. And for me, it made a lot of sense. I mean, I was very acquainted with the thesis, with the business model, with the product because of my prior experience. I was very familiar with the retail industry in Brazil because of my my first experience with with shopping malls. So this was a this was a truly uh, fortunate encounter and a, a great team because I mean team and thesis right are the the two things to focus on. And I was very sold in the thesis and it was a matter of learning more about the team, the culture of the company, and if those people were truly the best position ones to to win this market. And then I took the risk of timing. This was the very beginning of 2020. This revolution was going on in, in the US and other more developed markets. In Brazil, we already had a high rate of uh, internet and smartphone access, which enables a bunch of different businesses. But it, it still was a risk. When is this D2C thing going to truly happen for the region? And that was February 2020. And I took that risk. And my decision was deeply did risk within not even a month from making the decision. So th this was obviously great timing and, and very fortunate. Obviously, it was a, it's a tragedy what happened with our generations. But at the same time, I mean, for me personally, it was a opportunity of a lifetime as well to be able to make that decision and be part of a, a company that's growing the way that, that we have been growing. One of the things you mentioned, and, and I uh, confess to being an, a recovering engineer as well, so I'm not a professional engineer, but when you've gone through the, the training, it's hard to escape the uh, affecting the way you think and approach things. You mentioned the, the love of building things. And so naturally, you're in a scale up that's growing incredibly well and breaking new ground. But of course, you are actually having to build your own team and your own function to support all of that. And in particular, what, I, what I've seen is in the last, or in fact, last year, that your team grew from, say, 180 to 500 employees, which is significant scaling. 
And obviously, we know that that's challenging for a company to do a full stop. But of course, as a finance team and a finance function, you then have to support that. So what, how does your engineering background uh, affect how you then go and build out finance, which I'm sure is from an early, very early stage that you inherited to now, I'm sure, which is much more scaled? When I started with the company, we had a few people working in finance, but we didn't have any any strategic finance executive. But the, the both senior folks that were in charge of finance, they're now doing other stuff. <laughs> so they're they were not like finance career people. And obviously we have we still have a great support team that's been with the company for several years now, but really small team. It's really a matter of it's at least it's been for me, it's really a matter of prioritize the short term but also be able to project the long-term needs of the company. We cannot grow faster than the company. We're cost center, we're support function. So we are aware of that. And we, we do have to play a little bit of catch up. Finance teams might need to grow faster than the company if they're playing catch up, which is what we have to do. But at the same time, I think it's it's crucial that you have those two perspectives, the really, really short-term perspective, what you need to do this week, next week, next month, in the next three months or so, but you have to have a longer term, like North Star, the vision for the team and how you want the team to be, to be ready to accomplish the next milestone and what is that. And I think that was very important for me, especially to choose the leadership of my teams better and folks with high potential, maybe a little bit more senior than you would think that we would need at the time of the hire we left space between like the senior, more senior people and the people that they were hiring. So we're not like a total overkill, but you need people to support you on the building process. It's really hard to build all by yourself. And we obviously don't know everything. So we need to be very aware of what our strengths are and, and where are the places where we don't know that much and hire more senior people where we know less and hire less senior people where we know more and have that that very long-term perspective to be able to make the the shorter term decisions. I like that approach where you're you're hiring for almost the, not the role you need today but the role that you might need in one year's time or maybe even two years time. How do you then manage the the expectations of those people coming in because sometimes when you're bringing in like very tenured strong leaders they come from a place where they expect a certain level of support or a certain level of infrastructure around them. And in the very early days of a scale-up, you're often having to build things from scratch. There are holes everywhere and, and that's part of the fun. But is there a way that you try and manage the expectations of those people coming in so they understand that they're here to build, not just to operate? One of the, the core values of the company is around transparency. We spend a lot of time aligning things and expectations and make sure people know what's happening. Obviously selling the dream, and that is a big part of, of the hiring process is make sure you, you convey what you truly believe in. And now it's easier to convey that because now the market support that vision as well. It's not only us <laughs> telling people what we think, but I think we're well supported by renowned invest investors and, and the broader market at, at this point that that part of our life is easier. Being very transparent of what is going on in the company and what we need to do is truly important because, and it's a balance. I mean, it, it has to fit that person's way of doing things because what we have accomplished in my team, at least, is we have like this really, really brilliant people, high potential who have been trained in the beginning of their career in very traditional places 
for their specific functions. But they've all had at one point some kind of curiosity and some type of movement that was not the traditional one for their career. So they have shown that they have that that the entrepreneurial will to to truly build and develop things. So those people were already like this. So it's a matter of truly aligning. This is what's going to happen. You are the first lawyer of the company. It doesn't matter that your title is director of legal compliance or head of legal compliance. It doesn't really matter. You're the first lawyer of the company. So you're going to get all the contracts. We're going to start to centralize this and you're going to have to build the team in parallel. Maybe in, in, in three years, depending on the, the complexity of the, the business, you're going to have a, a bigger team that I'm quite confident that you'll be able to manage very well. But in the beginning, it's you. And I think that uh, aligning those expectations and, and trying to think together about what the long-term vision is. And the truth is, you're, we're all in the same boat because I also started as the first person here and had to had to do a lot of things that I didn't that I hadn't done for a long time in my career, which was fine, because I truly believe that this was going to be an incredible opportunity, career opportunity for me. Maybe not as fast as it's happening, but I always always believed in that. So it's it also gives us an advantage to be able to identify with the decision that the other person is facing as well. I love that sense of searching for curiosity. So classical training with a a sense of curiosity, which means that they're willing to go beyond the traditional route. Do you look for evidence of that curious move before? It may be in in that they've taken a different role or they've gone to a startup, or do you try and test that and explore that when you're talking with them in the interview? When you you have a history of, of taking risks, it's easier. But sometimes the person is just uh, what you need and they have the right profile and they it really seems that they do understand what the company is trying to do and they could be a, a real asset into, into the process of building that vision together that you just have to align over and over. And those people, and, and I'm talking about senior people, the people who don't, they're not, they're not afraid to ask tough questions and to think together and to show this comfort around certain topics. For instance, we have to educate the entire company on how to deal with the finance team because some people come with perspective of finance teams that are just not a good perspective to compare to what we are trying to build. So you kind of have to, and some people come from, some people come from very traditional places. Some people come from other entrepreneurial uh, journeys. So it varies a lot. And our team needs to align all that and educate folks and align expectations to be able to work together. And that's a challenge. That's a people's challenge. And that's something that has to be really aligned with the, the leaders of the finance team. And they need to be comfortable with that challenge and that uncertainty in those diverse backgrounds and, and expectations in order to, to be successful, right? My way of testing is to be like overly transparent and align things a hundred times and try to feel if there is any discomfort, and if the person is willing to show discomfort. So if the person's willing to show discomfort and, and vulnerability in the process, and they show comfort into the topics that are very important to us, that, that could be a way to test someone who doesn't have a history of taking risks, for example. And, and you mentioned there as well that the importance of 
educating the rest of the company on how, how best to work with you and collaborate with finance. And and often the topic comes up of around business partnering and about finance, not just being someone who serves or, or is served by the rest of the company, but a partner to sales, to marketing, to product and so on and all across the, the, the various departments. Is that an approach that you try to engender within your team as well? Yes, 100%. When we first started about building the FP&A team, we started thinking about building a business partnership team. And the idea is that we build things together. We have some tools, we have some frameworks that are useful for the teams to, to help them think about their goals, their milestones, and the way that they want to measure things. But ultimately, they know about the business more than we do. And especially, they are part of the business. So it, it, it makes no sense for... For my team to tell people what to do, we have to build together. And that just makes sense. I mean, we have the framework, we have the, the more technical skills to be able to also translate this into numbers and make sure everything is connects with what the other teams are doing because everything is connected and at the, the end of the day. But the process of building the vision, the process of defining the, the objectives or which are the, the KPIs that are useful. I mean, we want to be useful for people. We don't want to we don't want to build any process that's not useful. Sometimes we do have to, maybe a more useful process would be like a three-month rolling budget and not a, an annual budget for, for a company in our stage with our level of uncertainty. But we are we are almost obligated to do an annual budget for governance reasons. So it's not always the most useful, but our ultimate goal is to be useful to the teams. And if, if there is something that we're doing that it's not because of an obligation, and it's not useful, there's no point of doing that. And and we make sure that we convey that message to everyone and that each of the business partners that we are now hiring, most of them, we're in the process of building that team, but they are really aligned and aware of how we how we envision that, that collaboration. And when you see your teams partnering, again, and the way that you partner with the executive team, are there aspects of what would be maybe traditional finance that you're almost like shedding and leaving behind as you try and partner and develop the strategy? Or are you trying to bridge both worlds? I think the ultimate goal, it is to try to bridge both worlds because again, there are obligations and things that we need to do that the market expects us to do. And if we are to become a public company at one point, we need to be ready to do those things. And the way that we're structuring our team today has to be a stepping stone to that process. It does need to have a connection, the two things. We cannot simply ignore how the world works and reinvent the, the, the wheel. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to we're trying to learn the best from both worlds and trying to bridge that. And it's not a simple process because even though we, we truly try to be highly useful to the team, sometimes we need to do things that we need to do things that people might not understand as useful and what we do on our end is let them know that there are some things that we unfortunately we do need to do and why we need to do it and and that way people understand and they know that we're all in the same boat we're all trying to accomplish the same thing we i don't want my team to be doing a bunch of things that a bunch of stuff that's not useful it's either required or useful we cannot do anything that's that's not that doesn't fall within those two categories of things right so we're always asking ourselves, why are we doing this? Is this a stepping stone towards a more robust reporting process that we need to have uh, ready 
at one point in our life or is this truly useful to to someone within the company and if it's neither kill it i like that i like that a lot i think that that applies actually not just to finance but to many many teams is that if it's not required or nor useful then you know move on that leads me on and, and makes me think about of course your role as cfo and the thing that you hear more uh, over and over again is that the cfo is taking on an increasingly important role in the way that a company is is not just run but the strategy it forms and the way and the actual direction it takes and that in particular investors and ceos rely on the cfo as an advisor to advise on overall company strategy as well is that something that you experienced in your role? And if it is, how do you approach that those relationships with, in particular, your board and, of course, your CEO in helping them guide the strategy for Noom Shop? The way that, that I look at our team and our C-level team is that we are a team of highly talented people with a diverse background of experiences that have a bunch of problems to solve. And... Some of those problems we need two of us focused on to be able to resolve it. Some of those problems we need one of us. Some of those problems we need none of us. Some of those problems we need all of us. And we each bring a different perspective. So I believe like every one of us have a truly unique and a strategic role in the process of developing the long-term strategy of the business and also in the process of solving the, the, the most important problems that we have. Obviously, as a CFO, you end up having a little bit more outside exposure. So you need to be able maybe to translate that more into to your board or to the market when you're a public company, or even if you're not, because now <laughs> it almost feels like you're a public company without being it sometimes. And to the team in general, you also get used to selling the company, pitching the company. So we do need to dive each time deeper into the details of other departments. That's what you see on the surface. But the, the work that happens in the back is equally important. And it's what I said before. Each one of us have a unique ability and a unique way of contribute to the long-term vision and, and also the process of solving those, those big issues that we're trying to solve. And you mentioned, of course, the the CFO having more, perhaps more of an outside exposure because by nature you're facing into the market, engaging with prospective investors, current investors and the board. And just recently, of course, you've gone through two incredible rounds. So I think actually, yeah, both of them this year. So Series D and, and Series E this year. And they're like, they were huge in scale and also the number of investors as well. And that's in the midst of, of course, everything that we've gone through with the pandemic and so forth. So can you speak a little bit more about like, again, what that's like for a CFO like you leading on those types of funding rounds in an environment where there's, you know, there's a huge challenge because you've probably got a largely distributed team at certain points. And of course, there's so much unpredictability in the market and the world at the moment. So how, how did you navigate that as a financial leader? That's a great question. And plus I was pregnant. <laughs> I was I was five months pregnant when I joined the company, had my kid after the after series C before Series D last year, but then Series D only closed this year. So we had two rounds this year. So I think that's where one of the things that I mentioned early earlier comes into play, which is that is why I think it's so important for you to hire high potential people who have this leadership potential to work you, with you and things because 
as you mentioned, when you are in a fundraising process, in an M&A process, it's really hard to focus on, on the business. And sometimes you need to also be the, the person protecting the CEO and the other C-level team so they can work more on the business. So sometimes this is my role. My role is to engage with this outside players and protect my team so they can keep the, the things going, right? And that means that, that I need a strong team. I need a strong team that is aligned with me in, in what our, our goals are that are very autonomous into making the decisions as well and that don't rely on me every day for the everyday decision-making processes. That has helped me a lot throughout this time. I, I really, I'm really happy with the team that I've built and I, I trust them a lot and I, I trust them to bring me the most difficult problems so, so we can solve together and also to take autonomous decisions when sometimes I'm buried in some of those urgent processes. Having recently gone through a fundraising round this year at, at Soldo, even with best intent where you want to, you know, focus on the business and then just manage, like do is what's needed for the fundraising round, inevitably it requires a, an immense amount of energy, like emotional and, and typically of, of the people who need to make many decisions across the business. So the founder, CEO and so forth. So it's a, it can be such a drain. And to your point, I think that going back to your earlier point, that's where the hiring of really strong leaders within your team probably pays off dramatically because they can take on the onus and op almost operate as if you're not there. Exactly. And it's it's almost as, as I'm on a vacation, right? Because the, the level of urgency is really high and a day makes a difference. It, I think the sensation when you are in one of those processes is that each day makes a difference because each day can take two days. So everything needs to be done and closed as fast as we can. And it's a coordination process with many, many, many different stakeholders. The business is the most important thing of everything. And even though it's, it doesn't have that urgency, it's the priority. So how do you, how do you reconcile that? And, and for me, the best way of reconciling these things without putting the, those processes into risk is, is myself managing directly those are urgent processes and making sure I protect both my team and the C-level team from, from being overly distracted by this and trusting them to do the business that I know they can do. And so now, as you mentioned, uh, incredibly, like a join just after one round have this year steered another two rounds, which are, as I mentioned before, huge in scale and a number of investors involved. So you've been through the wars of fundraising. What have you learned from those processes in, in a way that you might pass on as advice to other CFOs who are about to go through fundraising? First of all, you always need to be networking. You always need to be talking to investors. You always need to be taking the calls because you never know when you're going to need cash or when a process is going to start itself. And depending on how the market is, on the cycle of the market, Either can happen. You can either have a really, really hard time raising money, which I've had in my career many times, or it can be easy and sometimes too easy that you cannot maximize the time that you have or the the company that you're you're working for. So I think networking 
is key for both of those extreme scenarios. You always need to be taking the call and keeping an interesting relationship with investors. So, and obviously plan, because if you if you think you're going to need cash and the market's not looking so good, you have to start really, really early, like very early, like a year before you think you might be in trouble. But if you're not in that in that scenario, and, and if you're a lucky person that's not in that scenario, you still need to do that job because if you one day you wake up and you have a term sheet in your hands, you probably would benefit from having more than one. And if you have those relationships built and that networking in place and, and you're taking care of that, you, you know who to call, you know the people that you need to involve, you know which board member can be the most helpful to connect you with the with the different parties. Yeah, I think the biggest learning is that networking is always important, even when it doesn't seem so. It seems that the timing is incredibly difficult to choose because you can influence it, but you can't control it. We used to talk, uh, so in, in a previous life, I, I worked at Dropbox and we were there for a few years before they went public. And in the lead up to going public, there was always a question. People always were interested. When are we going to go? When are we going to go? And Drew, our founder and CEO, always had to talk about, he could never reveal the timing of it naturally because that, that wouldn't be right. But uh, And I actually don't even think it was allowed regulatory-wise. But what he would talk about are the conditions and the principles that, that we as a company would be look at. And he always used to mention, it's like trying to either go into space or return uh, to Earth from space. He's like, you look for these little windows of opportunity and you just never knew when the market was actually going to open up uh, and you have to be responsive to that. And so, again, that sounds as if it's um, a parallel to what you're saying is if you're if you've built that network, it means when that window opens up, you're ready to move. Yes. And you know what you look for also is when you have those conversations, you you know what kind of partner you, you look for. Also, I think another a second level of advice is is to have this perspective of where you're trying to go. So whenever you raise a round, you need to think about the next one. And if you have the, and if you are in a position where you can choose, which it's not always true, as we know, but if you are in that fortunate position where you can choose the partner you want to work with, you need to think which is the partner that can help you get to that next milestone. I think that's very important as well, because that it, that has helped us. I mean, our our investors throughout the years have helped us a lot into the fundraising process. The main value that your investors add, was that through other connections into potential investors and in, in that type of network? Or was it also through guiding business strategy or maybe even introducing prospective customers? Again, each one of them has a different set of experiences and are able to help us in different ways. Sometimes it's, a, it's very, very simple ways, but with really high value. And sometimes it's, it's a little bit more complex it really varies. And I think we, we've had very, very valuable insights from our investor group and, and our board of directors throughout time that translate into not only helping us find the next lead investor for the next round, but also about markets to go into product features, connections, so we can benchmark our business with the with investing class in the world and, and so on. Moving on to the advice for others, so people that are listening who are working in some type of role within finance and maybe one day aspire to be a finance leader, a CFO, what advice would you give to them? Like, what, what things should they be doing to develop themselves that would help them prepare to be a, an effective CFO? I think there are many different paths that you can take to learn enough technical skills 
and learn enough leadership skills to be able to lead the the finance team of a company like Moving Shop or or like others. But usually I think that the best advice that I can give for any leaders in general are are two words that I realized in my personal and professional life, the importance of, and since then I've been kind of telling this to everyone just because I, I have been able to reconcile this these two words in almost every conversation that I have about leadership or personal relationships or any kind of human interactions, which are empathy and authenticity. And for me, those things are trainable. And people say they're not. For me, both are. And and whenever you you train yourself to be more empathic with the person you're speaking to, you can be an investor, a board a founder of a company that you're trying to acquire, someone from your team, someone that you're hiring to your team, a peer of yours, your spouse, your kids, can be anyone. It just facilitates interaction so much for you to be able to at least do the exercise of putting yourself into someone else's shoes that makes life just so much more easy. And the the contrary, which I, I translate with the with authenticity is it also works in that same direction. If you were an authentic person and if you can be your authentic self, which not everyone has the luxury of of doing, and I've not had the luxury of being my authentic self for my entire career, but thankfully now I do, people identify with you more and they see your vulnerability and you almost force them to be empathic to you and to work with you in that same direction. So for me, those two magical worlds have become magical worlds for me. And with a lot of feedback, because I'm not very, I'm not very good at in either. So I've had a, had a lot of, of, of very important feedback throughout my, my life to, to arrive to this conclusion. And since then, I've been able to reconcile those two words into almost everything that I do. You're yet another CFO that emphasizes empathy as being one of the most important skills that you can have for all of the reasons that you mentioned and more. On the authentic self, that, that's a really interesting point because you, you alluded to that you've not always been able to be your authentic self throughout your career. And I'm sure there are others listening, whichever stage of their career that they're at, that might not feel that they're being their authentic self. What advice would you give to someone that might feel that so that they can then arrive to a place where they can really show authenticity and, and again, feel that they're they're being true to their own values? I think this generation and myself included, I think we're really lucky because I think our our society finally sees diversity as an asset in general. Obviously not everywhere. It's an evolution process. We still have a long way to go. But in general, that is seen as an asset and in a lot of very interesting places to work. So my advice is if you if you are in a place where you don't feel like you're, uh, what you bring to the table is an asset, lucky for you, you have options. You have other places to go. The labor market is, is hot right now. So if you have the right skill set and, and you bring something else to the table, I'm sure that's going to be valued somewhere. So find a place where that is uh, valuable. And sometimes it's the place that you are today. Sometimes you just haven't realized that. And and that's why I think it's so important that leaders talk about this. So people that throughout their organization can, can identify with them and can realize that if that person is so comfortable talking about their issues and their problems and their paths, 
to become the leader a leader in this organization? Why can't I be that way? Why can't I do that? So sometimes you are in the right place, just haven't realized that. Which ties exactly back to your original, one of your original points around transparency and openness. The more you offer that, the more that you can be authentic and the more that you can build trust and maybe even an inspiration amongst your team. Yeah, that is exactly how I think about it. Tatiana, thank you so much for your time today. It's been brilliant. There's some amazing insights. For anyone that's listening that would like to go and connect with you or follow you online, where's the best place for them to do that? I don't know if I'm a good person. For, <laughs> I'm not, I don't really have time for that, or at least I haven't prioritized content creation at, at this point of my career. I'm super focused in, in my two little kids and, and the company that we're, that we're scaling up. So I'm not, not sure if people are going to find many insights following me around on LinkedIn or, but I guess the, the social media where it's easier to find information about me could, would be LinkedIn. But again, it's not, I'm not a good person. <laughs> it's good for people to appreciate. Busy CFO, busy parent. Uh, it's natural that you might not be prioritizing social media. But uh, Tatiana, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Ross. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.